Hey, welcome to night school. Got another one for you. And I promise it's not going to be about Ted Kaczynski. And it's not going to be about politics. But, you know, I read this other thing that Ted Kaczynski said about leftists. And uh, no, I'm kidding you. I'm kidding you. I'll save it for another time. I feel like I pretty well exhausted that topic between the what, like almost four hours, probably more than four hours. I've talked about that in the last three days. Last three days. You've talked about Ted Kaczynski for four hours in the last three days. Now, what I was thinking about, it has to do with eBay, (laughs) sort of. All you ever talk about is Ted Kaczynski, leftists, and eBay. How could you not talk about those? If you're not, listen, if you're not talking about Ted Kaczynski, leftists, and eBay, you're not paying attention. Your silence is deafening if you're not talking about those. Now, what I was thinking about is the lost art of dads throwing away childhood items. There was a story you would hear growing up, at least during the time period I grew up, where somebody's dad would throw away some childhood toy, something collectible, something that was worth money because he didn't know better. It would either be toys, action figures, video games, trading cards. Like the son would get older and maybe go off to college or move out for the first time. And the dad would be like, oh, he's out of the house. I'm just going to throw away all his stuff, all of his kid's stuff. He doesn't need his toys anymore because he's 18. It was a common story. I heard it more than once. But because that was the age of collectability... Because that was the era of memorabilia and collectability and people were very focused on things being worth. Oh, those toys are going to be worth something. Those toys were worth something. And there's actually one specific story I remember where one of my good friends had a brother who was nine years older. So he was an entirely different generation when it came to toys and action figures. And he had a bunch of the original Star Wars figures from the late 70s and early 80s. He had gotten them when they came out. And at that time, those figures were worth a lot of money. Some of them might still be. I know I I had a few of those that I sold a few years ago for a decent amount. But I think eBay and then the just crash of the the Star Wars franchise... I don't know what I was trying to, I don't know what joke I was trying to make there. Um, But the crash of the Star Wars franchise, that's definitely lowered the prices of all these things. And I'm kind of pissed about that. I should have sold everything I had much earlier. Because when you crash a franchise like that, when you oversaturate the market with new movies, new everything, when you keep doing that, you lower the price of memorabilia if it's not very good. So in the 90s, the prequels hadn't come out, and people hadn't, I mean, at this point, EB, EB wasn't even around. So the only place to get vintage Star Wars figures was collector markets, either through a catalog or comic book stores. Like you would go into comic book stores and collector shops, and they would have an Obi-Wan Kenobi figure for like $90. Now you can probably get 20 bucks for that. But at that point, it was it was difficult to find them and... People just had nothing but positive feelings about Star Wars because they hadn't oversaturated the market with new shitty movies. 
so that figures were worth more. And eBay also kind of gave people access. EB gave people access to all of that memorabilia in one place. Like you can just type in vintage Obi-Wan Kenobi and find one for sale. And because everybody knows that they're worth something, everybody who owns that is trying to sell it. So all of that has brought the price down quite a bit on collectibles, even vintage collectibles that were once worth money. But anyway, this my friend's brother was nine years older, and so he had all these old action figures that by then were already worth money. But his dad just threw them out. And I heard the story, like someone's like, oh, did you hear that uh, his dad threw out the older brother's toys? They were worth so much money. They were worth so much money. And we, we all gasped. He took all of his old Star Wars figures and he just threw them out. Because to his dad, and I, I knew his dad, he was a mechanic or something. He worked at a, a Jeep dealership. And he, he wasn't a mean dad. I don't think he didn't do it out of spite. He was just a, a car guy. And he, he saw those action figures in the closet. And it's just like, oh, he's 18. He's 19. He moved away. He doesn't need those toys anymore. So he just threw them away. But everybody was like, oh, my God, can you believe it? And that story repeated. You'd hear it about different collectible items, these stories about, oh, I, you know, when you went off to college, I, I didn't know that you still wanted those. I didn't know you still wanted your toys. I didn't know you still wanted your comics. You'd hear it about comic book collections, anything like that. You started to hear it about video games. And it was always this, it was just this tragedy when you heard about it, because you were like, oh, man, those were worth so much money. But, in a, you know, in that era... It's not like a dad is thinking that. A dad isn't sitting there thinking, oh, these are worth something. These these matter. They're just toys that we bought for our kid once, and now he's too old to play with toys, and he doesn't live here. It's totally practical. They might sell them at a garage sale for very cheap, because you could go to garage sales and actually get things, because that's the other side of it, too, is that people had no way to research the value of something unless they were somehow tapped into that. Unless somebody tipped them off or told them, a parent isn't going to know that something is collectible. So they would just hold a garage sale and be like, oh, five bucks for all of these vintage action figures that you could probably sell to a collector shop for a ton of money. And that happened later on with a friend of mine. He had moved out and I heard about how his dad went to his closet and he had all these band shirts very niche, you know, subculture, underground stuff. Probably hundred, at least hundreds of dollars worth of band shirts. You know, limited run underground band shirts. I don't know what the what it, what it's like now. I'm sure there's still a market for it, but it used to be where, like, when I was in high school, I would go to a concert or order a band shirt through the mail, and you could resell that a year later for a significant sum of money. Because they would just do a limited run of one design, and if it was a band that had a cult following, or was even just a flavor of the month new band in the underground, you could resell that just a, a relatively short time later for an exponentially higher price. And I did exactly that a number of times. And so this friend, like I don't know what all shirts were in his collection, but knowing him, he had all sorts of you know obscure stuff that would have got him a lot of money online. And it was told to me by another mutual friend who was like, did you know his dad just went to his closet and just threw away all those shirts? 
And I thought that was the funniest thing in the world because his dad had no idea. He was just like, our son moved out. He has all of these band shirts that he was into in high school. And as a young man, what does he need those for? He obviously left them behind. He's not wearing them. But I think that's a lost art. I think more and more you're going to have dads today who they would look at that stuff and if they don't play with it themselves, because I've heard similar stories, like he got rid of his Nintendo. I was, when he moved out, his, he had, a, he had an, a regular Nintendo with the gold Zelda game. Oh, he had a Super Nintendo with Final Fantasy 2 II and 3 and this game and that game. And his, his parents just sold it at a garage sale for nothing. I think today, though, a dad would be like, I play with those. I'm not getting rid of my son's Star Wars figures because I love Star Wars. It's that phenomenon I've talked about a lot on here where more and more parents are into the same things their kids are into. And I don't know that that's ever happened before like it is today where you have dads who are obsessed with Star Wars and play video games all day and their kid is obsessed with Star Wars and plays video games all day. Has there ever been a point in history where parents are obsessed with the same interests and hobbies that their kids are. There was always a divide. Like, even with cool parents, even if somebody's parent had been into music, there was still a divide there. But today it seems more and more like the parents, the dad is just like his son, even though his son is eight years old. They're both wearing Star Wars shirts. They're both spending all their time playing video games. So a dad today might be like, well, I'm not getting rid of the Star Wars figures because I I like to play with them. Or at the very least, he knows they're collectible. He knows about eBay. So it's an entirely different world. You're not going to have as many of the dads who are just like, he doesn't need this kid stuff anymore. I'm just going to throw it away. I'm just going to throw it away. I'm just going to sell it for $2 at a garage sale. I don't think you're going to see that anymore, but then you might not see it anymore too, because what are things going to be worth? What's even going to be collectible? I know there will still be collectible items because people always have a desire for jewels, but the jewels are different. Like, and when I go down the action figure aisle, you know, I mentioned how it's very bare, even going to the grocery, not the grocery store, but let's say Fred Meyer, which is sort of, it's a grocery store, but it's also just sort of an all around store. It's kind of like a slightly, I don't want to say higher class, but it's its like a slightly more respectable Walmart. And I respect Walmart, but people don't sneer at Fred Meyer. And Fred Meyer was one of my favorite places to go with my mom as a kid. Like if she was going to Fred Meyer, I, I was going with her. And they had a lot of action figures. They had a good toy section for a store like that, considering it wasn't Toys R Us or anything. You'd go down the action figure aisle at Fred Meyer, and they'd have tons of different types of figures. You go there today, and it's just like two types of figures. It's like pro wrestling figures and Fortnite action figures, uh, and, and of course, Star Wars. I wouldn't even consider, I wouldn't even count Star Wars anymore. Like seeing Star Wars action figures in the action figure aisle today, it's just like seeing decor. It's just like seeing litter on the side of the road or something. Speaking of litter. But I wonder how much of that stuff's going to be collectible. Like, are people going to be able to resell these Fortnite action figures? 
Are people going to care about that? They're probably going to be able to resell video games, assuming they're not just downloaded, because that's another aspect, too. Because video game collections ended up being worth a lot of money. Like, I still had a few Super Nintendo games and things like that that I found a few years ago. And people easily pay $50, $60 for even fairly generic games. There's others that you can't sell for 5 bucks, but there, there was some game I had that I don't remember anybody talking about. I think it was called Combat Tribes. It was kind of like Streets of Rage, if you've ever played that, where it's a side-scroller where you're just a bunch of guys beating people up. But it was called the Combat Tribes. I think it was one word, too. Combat Tribes. Combat Tribes. But I found that in my stuff, and I ended up selling that for like 50 or 60 bucks. So people will pay a good amount. And then I think there are some games that are worth even more. But I know a lot of games now, it's like you buy the system... And then you just download it to your, to your, uh, I, I, I don't know. I haven't played a new console game. The last console that I am familiar with is PlayStation 2. So that was a long time ago. I've never played a PlayStation 3 or anything else that came out after. So I don't know if people actually buy a physical disc or anything these days, but some of that stuff might be worth money if it still exists. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. This isn't this isn't a speculation, a collectability speculation show. Those exist. But you hear stories like that like, "Oh man, like uh, Ricky had oh dude, he had these magic cards and his dad just gave them away." Oh dude, he had he had all these Pokémon. He had all these Pokémon cards and his dad just gave them away. takes the wind out of your sails to hear that but yeah it's a good question like what kid stuff is even going to be collectible in the future and of course you can't predict it like that rubber gorilla the infamous rubber gorilla i keep bringing up i wouldn't have been able to predict that but at least that's from the 1960s or 70s it's hard to say if anything and that was just a different generation it's like that stuff that's, that's an era of collectability Toys made in that era are kind of what define the collectible toy market. They kind of define the collectible toy market, you know? So what that's coming out now even matters. I mean, maybe dads will just be throwing away their kids' Fortnite action figures now. And I was talking to somebody, I was talking to Miles about this the other day, but a few years ago this trend started where people were making their own action figure molds. They were they were the same molds of real action figures. Like like the very first one of these I saw was somebody made a Boba Fett using the same mold that was used to make the the widely produced Boba Fett action figure from years ago. But they filled the mold with this like translucent mixture of pink and purple, just one solid color. And they made these very professional blister packs with well-designed cards backing the blister pack and everything. And they were selling them kind of as art objects, not kind of as art objects, but they were selling them as art. And so it became this whole new market. And I saw one person doing that. I don't know if they were the first but within a short amount of time, all of these people were doing it. And if anything is a better example of monkey see, monkey do than that, I don't know. Because you think about it, it's like one person makes like kind of gay looking pink and purple translucent versions of Boba Fett 
and sells them as this custom action figure. And then within like two months, there's like 20 people doing it. And not just doing their own variations, doing exactly that. Because when I first saw it, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Because there's always something about action figures that catches my interest. I just like to see them. I like just to see what they look like. For the same reason that if I'm in a store with a toy aisle, I'll just kind of walk down the aisle and take a glance at what's going on with the action figures. So when I saw this online, I was like, huh, you know, I'm not into it. Because Miles and I were talking about this, and we were like, oh, yeah, that's basically streetwear. Because he, he said hip-hop. He was like, it almost seems like a hip-hop thing. And I was like, yeah, it's like streetwear. It appeals to the same people who are into streetwear. These custom pink and purple and multicolor custom action figures. It's basically streetwear in action figure form. But then, of course, somebody saw somebody else do it, and they're like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do exactly what that guy did. I saw that happen, too, with psychedelic Garfield art. And I guess I kind of did a little bit of that myself, not psychedelic Garfield. But some years back, when I was around the time that I got really into drinking and drawing at the same time, when I would just go to a bar and get drunk and draw, which was liberating, because I'd never thought that those two things would go together. Because back when I used to draw growing up, and then when I was even an, a young adult, I liked to smoke weed and draw. I liked to be sober and draw. But I never really thought of alcohol as something that would lend itself to drawing. And so I went through this period where it was extremely liberating to get drunk and just draw whatever I wanted. But I ended up drawing a lot of cartoons, which makes sense given I was drunk. But I would draw Donald Duck, sometimes wearing my clothes, I would draw a daisy duck with a big rack. I was just doing things like that, kind of just little... For whatever reason, I've always been obsessed with Duckburg. I've always been into Duckburg, Donald Duck, Scrooge, Daisy Duck. I've always kind of been... Out of all the Disney stuff, that always caught my eye. And so I was just kind of using that, doing some other cartoony stuff. Sometimes making them weird and dark... And sometimes kind of detaching them. Like I drew one drawing that I really like. There was kind of this vortex of texture and abstract shapes and overlapping vines and who knows what it even is. And then in the very center was just Daisy Duck's face, but with no head. It was just her eyes and her beak in the center of this vortex of shapes and abstraction. So, And I, I'm still proud of it. But a short time thereafter, it just shows that I was... I wasn't following anybody else. I hadn't seen anybody else do that. And of course, people have always done warped Disney drawings. It's not like that's a new idea. You know, you think about the comics with an X era. People were doing basically that. Cartoon characters just melting. Weird, creepy, unsettling versions of cartoon characters. Well-known cartoon characters. So it's not like that's a revolutionary idea. But I didn't see somebody else do it and be like, I'm going to do that. But with Donald Duck, you know, I didn't, I just didn't do that. But I was obviously tapped into the zeitgeist. And sometimes that happens. And if you're somebody who has an aversion to trends, to an, an aversion to participating in trends, when you realize, even if you were just following the zeitgeist, when you realize that you're doing something that other people are doing, for me, I, I, it, it's not a comforting feeling. I'll say that. 
I feel cheap. And sometimes you just have to get past that and be like, eh, whatever. It was fun. But I realized like just right around that time or shortly thereafter, I started to notice people were getting really into this psychedelic Garfield. And then I ended up stumbling on this strain of people on Instagram who all of them were doing that and they were selling it. They were popular. And I was like, well, I guess I don't need to do that anymore. For whatever reason, people were preoccupied with Garfield, though. Multiple people. It's like the action figure thing, where you see that multiple multiple people have tapped into this same niche. And maybe they were all following the zeitgeist, but often what they're doing is so similar, and they're part of the same network that you know, and, and you just know from knowing people. It's monkey see, monkey do. They're like, oh, that person had a good idea. I should do it. I should do that, too. There's some people, that's just how they operate. I don't even say that from a place of judgment. They're just okay doing that. They're okay. They feel completely okay seeing somebody do something, and their response is just, I'm going to do that. And they don't even try to do anything different. Like, they see somebody with a certain haircut, and they go, I'm going to get that haircut. That's just how they operate. I'm not calling them anything. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm not saying they're stupid. I'm observing them. But sometimes simply observing people is insulting. (laughs) More and more I notice that sometimes simply noticing something happening and commenting on it, even if you're being purely descriptive, is insulting. And maybe that should tell you about the thing someone's doing. It's kind of like when I've talked about when you're fat, like growing up fat, what sucks about it is simply being described feels like an insult. And that's not because society has conditioned you to feel that way. You just, there's, there's very few ways you can describe a fat person without it being insulting. Well, he's kind of big. Uh, oh, so, he, so he's like six foot five and muscular. No, uh, he's about five foot six. And he's not muscular, but he's he's big. I commented on this before. I know I've talked about this before because I mentioned how I had, a, I had a football coach who ended up. It turned out he ended up being he was about this five foot three Italian guy from the East Coast, Coach Joe, and he would cook us pasta on game days. He would come to the school at lunchtime and he would take over the home ec room and he would cook us pasta for lunch. And it was fun. It was a, it was a good team building exercise. He would talk some shit and stuff, but I liked that. I liked him as a coach. But it came out that he had been sexually assaulting teenage girls for years. And there were rumors about him at the time. Like my friend Brett, who was a redneck, he came up to me once and he was talking about how his girlfriend's sister babysat Coach Joe's kid and how Coach Joe tried to make a move on her. And I didn't know what to say, because coming from my redneck friend, I knew it wasn't a lie. He's not the kind of person who would lie about that. But I didn't know what to say. It was just like, whoa, Coach Joe's creepy. And we had like these girls who managed the team. There were three of them. There were three girls from my class, and they were, girls like to be around the Warriors. You know, girls like to be around the football players. So girls would volunteer to be the quote-unquote team manager. What did they even do? They would just kind of, they would come to, what's crazy is it was dedication because they came to every practice 
they would basically just carry things. They would hand you water. They were like wa- they were like glorified water boys. But because they were these girls who just wanted to be near the football players, they were called team managers, which is funny. I don't know what they actually did. They were basically ball boys or, uh, you know, water boys. But since they were girls, you gave them an, a different name. But I remember Coach Joe going out of his way to kind of joke with them. And he didn't say anything weird. He didn't do anything weird. But looking back, you know, it came out years later that he had actually, he had sexually assaulted a family friend's daughter while she was sleeping. Like they were on a vacation and she was sleeping on a couch wherever they were staying and everybody was gone. And I guess he fondled her. And I, when I heard that story, I immediately went back to my redneck friend being like, oh yeah, he tried to make a move on... Alyssa's sister when she babysat his kid and I was like wow you know there was truth there those rumors followed him and there were other incidents too other reported incidents so this is something he had done for a long time he wasn't a pedophile he wasn't into little girls he was into underage teenage girls and then I look back and you know it's funny how when you learn something like that, it casts a shadow over an earlier observation. In this case, like I remember him going out of his way to go up to our girls who were the team managers, and he would just make little jokes, nothing inappropriate, but the other coaches didn't do that. The other coaches were these Italian guys too, because Coach Joe had been one of my coaches' coaches. Like he had coached my coach. <laughs> when my coach was in college. So they had this like long-term relationship where he had been his coach and now they're both coaches together on my team. And so they were all these Italian guys and they were all kind of, they all kind of had a similar temperament. But I look back and coach Joe was the only one who went out of his way to talk to the teenage girls a lot. And he's joking around, you know, while it wasn't inappropriate, when you find out that he sexually assaulted teenage girls, you realize that he was trying to flirt with them. But anyway, what what got me going on that? What got me going on Coach Joe? Who knows? Went from talking about the zeitgeist and Garfield drawings, psychedelic Garfield. Something got me thinking about that. Sometimes I can find it, sometimes I can't. But I'd like to go back to the... Just when you when you notice that you've... When you're, well, I guess, observing something, when you're simply observing something, oh, there we go. I knew I'd find it. I didn't. Truth is, I didn't know that I'd find the thread connecting it. But no, the reason I thought of that is because Coach Joe would call me big guy. He really took a liking to me. Like, it was actually really disappointing to find out that he was a criminal freak. Because I do like those Italian personalities. He was from New York. He was very loud and outspoken, five foot three, probably 50 years old, cooked us pasta. <laughs> you know, he, he would seriously come to the school, but looking, you could look back at that and you're like, oh, he would come to the school every Friday to cook us lunch in the home ec room. It was a chance for him to look at teenage girls in the school. I have no doubt that factored in. Coming to the school to cook the team pasta on game day, give us some carbs, give us some fuel. Yeah, it was a nice team building exercise and we all loved it. 
it really built camaraderie to eat a bunch of pasta together with the coaches at school. But I also look back on that, and I'm, I'm like, I bet he looked forward to coming to school. And because he was a football coach, he had access to the school. There was no problem. And it's just like you hear about people being camp counselors. It's like by coaching, even though he didn't coach girls' sports, the fact that he coached youth football in a school gave him access to school where he could see girls and check out girls. Just funny how that works. But yeah, what got me thinking about that is how he would call me big guy. They're like, hey, big guy. And I liked it because when someone calls you big guy, it's always in a good way. Like they always mean it in a, in a friendly way. Like people don't call someone big guy as an insult, even if the guy's fat, which I was. Even if you're fat, if somebody calls you big guy, there's no insulting way you can say that. Like you can't even put it in an insulting tone. You can't say, hey, big guy. I guess you can, but it. I, the only you know, here, here's the thing. The only way that big guy becomes an insult is if you're a shrimp. The only way that, the only way you could insult somebody by calling them big guy is if they're a freaking shrimp. Because they did that to a team member actually, and this is how you know that this is, it's interesting when you see somebody get psychologically damaged in real time. Because there was a player on that team, Andy, and Andy was tiny. He was a little bit younger than I was. I think he was a year younger than I was. He was kind of short. He hadn't hit his growth spurt because I don't think he stayed short. But at that time, he was really short and he was really skinny. And so the coaches called him weight room, which is hilarious. They were like, hey, it's weight room. And the, the whole team started calling him that. And Andy would laugh it off. But he got really, like, in the years to come, he got really into lifting weights. And he got completely jacked. And my friend Nick continued to hang out with him. Like, he wasn't a friend of ours. Like, but in high school, actually, he was my first weed dealer, actually. He got really into smoking weed. And at that time, we didn't know anybody. So we went to him, and he would sell us leaves. Because he had all these connections, and he would get trim and stuff. He was like a sophomore in high school, but he would get, like, leaves and stuff that had been trimmed from plants which is interesting so he was getting an assortment of weed and weed byproducts and so we would buy just like a bag of leaves and we would smoke those initially because he would sell it to us for cheap and uh, so that was it was funny like buying weed from weight room i think i even brought it up with him when we were smoking weed i was like oh yeah remember how the coaches called you weight room probably not a good thing to bring up when you're stoned but in the years to come, he got really into lifting weights, and he got unbelievably jacked. And it came out that he was not just taking steroids, but he was selling them. And he got really into guns. And then some years ago, he got arrested for, stero- for dealing steroids and cocaine. And there were pictures of him online. He had, a, I believe, a Facebook account. And there were pictures of him, like, just completely jacked, holding an AR-15, riding a motorcycle. And like my friend Nick said, he became an action movie villain. He basically transformed into an action movie villain. And when I found that out, that he was selling steroids, taking steroids, I was like, holy shit. When the coaches called him weight room... They psychologically damaged him. <laughs> and uh, that doesn't mean you shouldn't 
joke around because the coaches were good natured. Even though one of them was a sex offender, <laughs> even though one of the coaches was a sex offender, when it came to the guys on the team, when it came to the boys, the coaches were really good natured. Like they called me lungfish. They'd be like, hey, lungfish. Because I was fat, and so when I would run wind sprints, I would breathe heavily. And they were like, hey, we should call you lungfish. Hey, lungfish. And you know what? It didn't insult me. It's like, yeah, I breathe heavy when I run because I'm fat. I'm also their favorite, one of their favorite players. So it was just, it was all in good fun, I felt like. But Coach Joe, in addition to calling me lungfish, he would call me big guy. He'd be like, hey, big guy. But he didn't mean it in an insulting way. But I remember thinking about it when he would say that, and it'd be like, you know, I'm only five foot ten. I'm not. Parti- I'm not muscular. So it's basically a nice way of saying, "Hey, fat guy. Hey, fat boy." <laughs> and so it's funny, like just when you call someone big guy, how it's the only nice way to to really describe a fat person. He's big. But outside of just saying big guy in a in a friendly way among guys, there's really no way to describe a fat person without hurting their feelings. And the current psychology around fat shaming and all that would tell you that that's because we've demonized fatness. I don't think that's it. Because there's no way to describe a fat person without the word fat. There's no way to describe a person without that word. And even if you make that acceptable, which it kind of is today, being fat is about as acceptable, I I think, as you could possibly get today, given how many people are fat and how much stigma there is about insulting someone for being fat, which I don't believe in doing. I don't believe in insulting someone for being fat, but I'll talk about, I'm willing to talk about being fat and what it means without being sensitive about it. Especially because I have fat credibility. I spent a lot of years being fat, as I've talked about. But my whole point is not that you should be able to go insult somebody for their weight, which I don't think you should ever do. It's a mean thing to do to somebody. But it's crazy that you can't even just objectively describe somebody. And uh, there's a lot of things like that. There's a lot of things out there today where to even describe something as you see it is unacceptable. To notice something is unacceptable. Why'd you even notice that? It's your fault for even noticing that. And, you know, you got to be careful what you say to people. You got to be careful what you notice. Not even in a politically charged way. You never even know what noticing something, what you notice might become troublesome. What what being, admitting that you're aware of something. It's funny how much trouble you can get in just by admitting that you're aware of something. I mean, you can get in trouble criminally for that, obviously. Oh, I was aware of the fact that he committed the murder, but I didn't tell authorities. You can get in a lot of trouble for that. For not reporting a murder. I was aware of it. I just didn't do anything about it. But even in a non-criminal sense, just being aware of something can get you in a lot of trouble. Social trouble. Noticing something. Observing something. Describing something. And uh, some of that is just 
tact. There are things, obviously, that just play into polite interaction, polite communication, pointing things out you don't need to point out. But it's not just limited to things that might hurt somebody's feelings. Just noticing and being aware. And it's funny talking to neighbors, because sometimes your neighbor will let on what they notice. Oh, I noticed that you do this. Like the lady across the street, uh, she's been really sweet to me since my mom died. She lives alone. She's probably in her, she's probably 70. She doesn't go out much. She doesn't have people over to the house. But I'll occasionally talk to her if I see her. And I, yeah, I really like her. But it's funny, she'll just like let on little things that she's noticed, which communicates to me that she's looking out her window at what I'm doing. And I mentioned before how in school there's definitely a stigma, stigma against that, where raising your hand in class and communicating knowledge, you don't want to, your peers judge you for that. How there's a stigma against knowing someone's name who you're not particularly close to, to the point where people will pretend they don't know somebody's name, even though they do, because admitting that you know somebody's name somehow communicates that you have too much knowledge or you are too aware. Especially if they don't know your name, but you don't know if they know your name because they might be pretending not to know your name because there's there's a stigma about acknowledging that. Because we have this mortal fear of being like, oh, your name's Jim, right? And Jim's like, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. We're terrified of that. We're terrified of knowing who somebody is, but them not knowing who we are, unless they're famous enough. If someone's famous enough, if they're successful enough, we don't really mind that we know they're. We know everything about them. But they don't know anything about us. They don't even know we exist. But if it involves peers in any way, if it involves our peers, admitting that you know somebody or you know something about somebody and it not being reciprocal is mortifying to the point where people are more afraid of that than things that should actually provoke fear. I'm always fascinated by that and I haven't quite figured it out. I haven't quite figured out why that's so scary for people. Or the example I've used is when you think somebody's waving at you and you wave back and you find out that they were waving at somebody behind you. It's only happened to me once or twice. It happened to me in junior high where this girl that I knew, it's like like I went to her party, like she knew me and everything. But one time I was out somewhere and like I saw her, it was like some sort of school event outdoors and she lifted her hand in a wave and it was directly toward me and I lifted my hand back but I saw that her gaze was going past me to some other girl who happened to be walking near me and I was like oh shit that's embarrassing you want to die you know it, it's it's mortifying I don't use that word lightly to the point where I remember it the fact that I even remember that happening it's not like anybody humiliated me for it It's not like she humiliated me afterward. I was waving at so-and-so. I wasn't waving at you, you fucking... I wasn't waving at you, big guy. 
It's not like she said anything, but the simple fact that I thought she was waving at me, I waved back and she was waving at a girl behind me was enough for me to remember it. And I mean, to be fair, I remember everything. To be fair, I remember every little thing that's ever happened. So maybe it's not that significant. Maybe it it certainly didn't traumatize me or anything, but you remember when that happens. And it's similar to, I mean, and you, you, you have a reaction too. Like if you know who somebody is and you feel like they should know who you are and you meet them and they don't, or they pretend not to know who you are, you almost want to dislike them for it. It kind of goes back to what I've talked about, where if you find out someone doesn't really like you or they outright dislike you, your gut instinct is to hate them or dislike them back. Your natural human response to that is to, oh, they dislike me? Well, I dislike them. And people even do that with famous people. They even do that with people, not even just famous people, but like if somebody's in a band you like and they're not nice to you, if you contact a band, you send them fan mail and they're not very nice or you meet them and they're busy, they blow you off. You see where that sticks with people and they might hate the band for that. Whereas I've never been insulted by that kind of thing. And that just goes back to like people wanting everybody to be nice, which being nice is good. We can see right now the climate we're in that being nice, just being nice as a general principle, no matter who you are, is virtuous. But I'm not insulted when someone isn't. And there's a whole other dimension to that where somebody's public persona is I'm a nice person because that was the whole Ellen thing. Alien Ellen. Alien Ellen. I'm saying Ellen. Alien. Yeah, you're saying alien. Now, Ellen, uh, Ellen Degenerate. You don't hear that. I'm sure I know a million people have made that joke, but I've never heard it. And I'm surprised. I'm surprised I've never heard an Ellen Degenerate joke. But uh, especially because she's people haven't made that joke for that reason alone but anyway you know it came out that ellen degenerate treats her staff and people very poorly and i understand that's a little extra i understand the response to that i mean it's kind of crazy when people get preoccupied with it because that was there were like weeks of articles and interviews of people talking about that did you know ellen is mean just think about how absurd our media circuit is that a leading headline and big talking point to the point where I'm talking about it now. And I was even just podcasts. I listened to their kind of counterculture. People were like, Hey, did you hear in the news that Ellen is mean? That almost sounds like a South park episode. You know, the way South park will portray a news story. Like the, the way South park will have like a controversy and then it'll spread and they'll show. I know I've seen South park episodes where they'll show like fake news shows. It'll be like a composite of different news shows reporting some absurd fact. But that's really how absurd it is. It is like a South Park episode where for like a month, it felt like, at least two weeks, the news was just like, did you hear Ellen is mean? You'd listen to a podcast. So did you hear that Ellen is mean? 
And the only reason that matters is because her whole persona is that she's bubbly and really nice and sweet. So the fact that she's mean it makes people feel betrayed. But it's hilarious to think about that people were worried about that. Ellen is mean. Oh, my. Ellen is mean. But I always laugh when somebody has a bad interaction with somebody they admire, like a musician or a celebrity, and they're like, yeah, he was mean. To the point where it even just, it spreads virally through word of mouth and that goes that's pre-internet this isn't this isn't an internet phenomenon where like growing up people would be like oh yeah dude i met i met tom cruise you know he was he was a jerk oh my brother's cousin waits tables at applebee's and tom cruise came in because tom cruise totally eats at applebee's tom cruise came into applebee's you know he didn't even tip You'd hear stories like that all the time. I heard the one I joked about on here was when my friend, I was visiting my friend in my hometown after we turned 21 and we found this hole in the wall bar, Emerald Gardens. It was attached to a Chinese restaurant, but everybody who hung out there was because the bar was separate. And so everybody who hung out there was like over 60 years old and it was packed. It was filled with old people. And we just sat there and listened to their conversations. And there was this guy probably like a a 65-year-old Jewish guy named Gordon. I'll never forget his name because he was was talking so much. He was a character. And uh, they were talking about celebrity heights. They were talking about the heights of celebrity, which is an old person talking point. And somebody was like, Pierce Brosnan, six foot two. Somebody else was like, there's there's a new Irish actor. I think they were talking about Daniel Day-Lewis. I don't know if he's tall, but I th- for some reason, I think they were talking about him. And they were like, there's this new Irish actor, uh, 6'3". It was amazing. They were just sh- comparing notes about actors' heights. It was like the perfect old person talking point at a bar. But that, of course, got into Sylvester Stallone, because I think he's short. I think that's the whole thing. You know, because that was the Tom Cruise thing. You know Tom Cruise is short? You know Ellen's mean and Tom Cruise is short? This is what we care about. But Gordon, he's like, you know, I have a cousin who lives in L.A. And, you know, she used to, in her social circle, she had friends of friends who knew Sylvester Stallone. He he said Sly, actually. He goes like, some of her friends used to hang around with Sly Stallone. I hear they call him Ego Stallone. I hear they call him Ego Stallone. He actually said that. He was talking about how his cousin had friends who hung out with Sly Stallone in L.A. And he hears they call him Ego Stallone because that's currency. Like sharing some undesirable fact about a celebrity is currency to people. I hear they call him Ego Stallone. I hear they call her Ego Degenerate. (laughs) I hear they call her Ego Degenerate. That'd be funny. Ego Degenerate. That's my name. My name is Ego Degenerate. Yo, I'm ego degenerate. But I love how that's the currency. Is like, because you know, you'll hear stories too. Sometimes, like, my mom was at. She went to the restaurant that's in the Birds. It's on the California coast. Her friend and her were visiting California, and they they love the Birds and Hitchcock. So they went to the restaurant that's featured in the movie The Birds. 
And amazingly, Samuel L. Jackson and like his sister or mom came in, which is amazing. Like, I mean, the fact that like you're in the rest, you go to the restaurant where they filmed the birds and Samuel, Samuel L. Jackson is just there that day. But they, they, of course, were like observing him. And my mom's friend was quite a bit older. And what's funny is she didn't, she didn't know who he was. Like my mom recognized him. She's like, whoa, that's Samuel L. Jackson. And she said that when they paid the bill, obviously he gave a good tip because the waiter came over with the, with the, the bill and, and like bowed and was like, thank you so much. Oh my God. Like you just made my life. And it was obvious that he had given a very favorable tip. But you don't hear those stories that much. You don't hear the stories about, oh, Samuel L. Jackson came in and gave a really good tip. Oh, we, we saw Samuel L. Jackson give the waiter a really good tip. Normally what you hear is, I hear they call him ego degenerate. I hear they call her ego degenerate and she doesn't tip and she's mean. She's mean. But it always got me too, because having a background in underground music and everything, people who should know better or be more conditioned or just more, more open-minded get really upset when a guy who like makes dark music isn't very nice. And I understand that, you know, making dark music doesn't mean you have a license to be a jerk off. I get that. But it's always funny to me when someone who's a fan of that is upset by it. It's not that that person should be a jerk, but when that person is a jerk, someone's like, oh my God, I'm going to sell all my records. Oh, dude, I heard he was, he was so mean to me. I told the story on here many times because it was so funny to me, but years and years ago, like 15 years ago, 16 years ago, there was a guy in a doom metal band who was very popular at the time. And he had been doing a DJ set at a bar and a guy took his, the guy wanted to give him a demo CDR of his own band. And so when this doom metal musician that was very popular went to the restroom, the guy went over and just left the CDR on the guy's DJ rig and then watched. It's like someone setting a trap for a rabbit. It's like, it's like with those boxes that are set for rabbits or you pull the stick. It's almost like, it's funny to me that he, he like ran over and set his CDR down and then watched the DJ rig to see the guy return and get it. Like rather than just going up and giving it to him, he set it on the DJ rig wait, and waited and watched. Like, it's so funny. But he watched and then the guy came back and he like probably to was ready to to start playing records again and he just looked down and saw this new this CDR sitting there he was probably drunk but still he looked down and suddenly there was this probably a really unattractive CDR it was probably just a CDR you know something cheap looking and he just looks down and sees it and he just like backhand swiped it off the table just like get that out of here and the guy in turn got online and he was like he's such a jerk you know he's so mean He's so fucking mean, dude. I just want to tell you, this guy who plays in a doom metal band, he's so mean. Sorry for that voice, but it's just it was it was so funny to me reading that at the time because it was like a it was like an essay. This guy wrote an essay on some forum, and he was like, "I'm just letting you all know that he's mean." 
Meanwhile, it's like the, his description of like setting the CDR and then watching him swipe off. It was humiliating for the guy telling the story. You know, it made him seem pathetic. And then it made him even that much more pathetic that he got online and was like, I'm going to tell you a story about how I did something really pathetic. And a guy was very dismissive of me. Like, what did he expect him to do? Come back to the DJ rig and find this mysterious CDR there and be like, I'm going to listen to this. Probably in that guy's dream, probably in the fan's dream, he comes back to the DJ rig and sees this mysterious CDR and, and he's probably like, you know what? I'm just going to play this right now. I'm already doing a DJ set and there's this mysterious CDR here by this guy's shitty band. I'm just going to play this right now for everybody. And we're all going to rock out. We're all going to dance. We're all going to dance. That's probably what that guy imagined in his head. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the mysterious CDR on his DJ rig. He's going to come back from the restroom, probably drunk, without washing his hands. And he's going to put the CDR into the stereo and he's going to play it for everybody. And he's going to go, you know what? This is the best thing I've ever heard. In fact, I'm going to make an announcement. Everybody, I'd never heard this before. Somebody left it here. It was just waiting for me, and it, it fell from heaven. The CDR fell from heaven. I'm going to make sure this guy gets signed to a record label. I'm going to make sure this guy gets signed to the record label. You know, what did that guy expect? And it's funny that it hurt his feelings so badly that he got online. I mean, it's just sad. Because I've had bad interactions with people in bands and stuff before, and I took it in stride. I was just, especially, you know, even when I was younger, like even when I was a kid, I remember having like some kind of bad interaction with somebody in a band where they were just kind of, kind of a jerk, kind of dismissive. It didn't turn me off. I was just like, okay, well, I kind of appreciate it in a way. Because it's like, it's somebody who's not trying to kiss their fans' ass. Because that always bothers me too. It's always disingenuous when someone's a little too flattering to their fans, like, oh my God, you know, I love you. Like, you know that like, I actually like my fans more than I like my friends. In fact, my fans are my friends. And sometimes that's real. Sometimes people are like that. But it always seemed a little bit insulting when someone's a little too flattering to their fans. Like they're being a salesman or something. It's, you know, this artificial niceness. So when someone's just mean to their fans... You know, oh well, at least they're being real. That's kind of how I felt about it, and it's how I still, I still feel about it. I think it's good to be nice to people as a, as a general rule in life, but it's especially funny when it deals with dark subject matter, because it's like, it's not like you're, it's not like this is a band that's singing about positivity. It's not like this is a band that's telling everybody to love each other and be friends. So, yeah, you know. It's kind of like the dad throwing away collectibles. Like thinking about that guy in the band just swiping the CDR off the DJ rig, off the table. It's kind of like a dad throwing away his kids' collectibles. Oh my God. When he came, when, when this guy that I admire from the band, from the, the band, came back and he swiped my CDR off the table. It reminded me of when I went off to college and my dad threw away all my Pokemon cards. 
really brought to mind my dad. It's probably what he was looking for. Not to get all Freudian, psych 101, whatever. But it's like, it sounds like a daddy issue to me. If a guy from a band not giving a fuck about your CDR breaks your heart. You know, it's like you're looking for daddy's approval from that guy. Looking for daddy's approval. I hear they call him ego disingenuous. I hear they call him ego disingenuous degenerate. Oh, sliced alone? Five foot one. And not only that, but my cousin's friend used to hang out in a circle of people that knew sliced alone. And I hear they call him disingenuous ego degenerate. I hear they call him disingenuous ego degenerate. I thought that's what they called Ellen Degenerate. Degenerous. I thought they I thought that her name was Ellen the Generous. I thought it was like one of those medieval heroes. Ellen the Generous. Ellen DeGenerous. Yeah, Ellen the Generous. Ellen DeGenerous. You're telling me it's Ellen Degenerate? And you're telling me that Sly Stallone's nickname is Disingenuous Ego Degenerate? Dead? <laughs> D-E-D? D-E-D. E-D. It'd be funny just to tell everybody, like you go back to that bar the next night and, and Gordon, the gossipy 65-year-old man, he tells that same story about someone else. Oh, you're talking about Daniel Day-Lewis? I hear they call him Ego Day-Lewis. I hear they call him Daniel Ego-Lewis. Not as funny. Not as funny, but I, I, I had to try it. You know, what this, you know what the L in Samuel L. Jackson stands for? It stands for ego. Doesn't even make sense. I heard that he uses an L as his middle initial because he's hiding the fact that his real middle name is Ego. Stupid. We're getting real stupid. Trying to find a, a better joke than Ego Degenerate, but I can't find one. This has been a wild ride. It's It's been about an hour. I, I don't think this should go on more than an hour. This is one of those episodes where you just... When you start trying to find a joke in Samuel L. Jackson's middle initial by using a word that doesn't even start with the same letter, I think you're just being an ego degenerate if you go on for more than an hour. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.